I'm Richard Niles, and welcome to the third and final part of Pat Metheny, Bright Size Life. You're listening to Have You Heard from Pat's Letter From Home album. And have you heard Pat Metheny play the guitar? Well, you're about to, because in material recorded just for you lucky BBC listeners, Pat picked up his guitar to demonstrate some of the concepts that have made him one of the most influential musicians in jazz today. Now, most guitarists would have been satisfied to come up with a signature sound and use it for their whole career, but not Pat. He used acoustic and electric 12-string guitars in unusual tunings. He developed the Synclavier and Roland guitar synthesizer on tunes like Are You Going With Me? Developed the fretless nylon string guitar. And what about the sitar guitar? developed a whole new range of acoustic guitars, including the 42-string Picasso guitar. guitar a new instrument, but don't just take my word for it. Listen to jazz guitarist Jay Azzolina. He made the guitar a new instrument in terms of his uniqueness and sound and phrasing and I'm not even talking about his writing. That's a whole other area, but just the way he played the instrument and what he brought to it, it was like a reinvented guitar. You know, how many people can you say that about? And Grammy-winning jazz vibraphonist Gary Burton. Pat is one of the most successful jazz musicians in history. He has very large audiences and a great fan base. 
For one thing, he is a very melodic player, and I think that's a key ingredient for any successful jazz musician. But I think above all else, he has a terrific charisma, a natural charisma. He really communicates to the audience extremely well. I've sometimes watched him play for uh, large audiences of thousands of people, and I can feel his personality really emanating right off the stage, right into the audience. He understands his audience very well, and it doesn't mean he plays down to them. Far from it. He, in fact, is saying to them, I have something important that you need to hear, and just pay attention, and this is going to really be something for you. And that message comes across, and people really pay attention. And acclaimed drummer Jack DeJanet. Fun thing about playing with that is, um, besides being a very, very deeply committed jazz musician, he's always trying new things, always challenging himself. He has intense presence in what he does, how he plays. You know, his vision is to reach a wide audience. And he's really got successfully done that. Conscientious, great, great use of sounds and abstractions. The spirit of what he does is, is joyful. It's serious, but it's also joyful. He's relentless in the sense that you know, he always practices a lot. You know, he wants to be at his best. You never find Pat off. He's always consistent. You know, he can play any style of music. But to those of you knocked out by Pat's impressive technique, his incredible sense of time, his swing, his groove, and his unerring taste, perhaps the most unexpected thing would be Pat's own view of the guitar and his relationship to it. Just as a pen is an instrument for a poet to express their thoughts in verse, Pat sees the guitar as an instrument to express his thoughts in music. What I always try to explain to people that think about instruments a lot is that many players are really involved in playing their instrument. And what I find is that those are the players that you tend to enjoy for a little while and maybe the second tune you enjoy a little bit less and then the third tune you enjoy a little bit less, and then by the fourth tune you're either asleep or out of there. Because it's mostly about them playing an instrument. And it's certainly that way with me in a much more condensed form. I mean, I very quickly get a sense of somebody's connection to either instrument or idea as sort of their entry point. For me, the idea is completely the dominant factor because the truth is I don't really play the instrument that well relative to several hundred thousand other people. But to me, the playing of the instrument is almost incidental because the idea should dominate and should win. So, like, say I have an idea that would be, if I played it on the piano, it would be this, which is a very simple idea. And yet, at the same time, that idea translated through a touch, a way of hearing sound, and a kind of general conception of music, for me, could be... Which, I don't know if those three notes, if you heard it on a record, would carry my total identity, but it would come pretty close, especially if I did... You know, it's sort of the sound, the touch, the the dynamics, the nature of the instrument all work together to create whatever thing exists that's in my part of the world. But that idea is strong enough that there's a million things you can do.
all of that other stuff, you know, personality, qualities of what a good improviser can bring to the way it connects with the bass and the drums and the room and the audience and all that become sort of the real meat of what makes the music sound like music. And the idea really is just the envelope for all that stuff to happen with the instrument being like fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth on the priority level. Now, somebody who's playing the instrument from an instrument standpoint, this whole issue of ideas often is not even in the top ten. It's more like the ideas are just an envelope for them to do this, that, or the other thing. What I notice with a lot of jazz is that a lot of jazz lacks ideas. It's more about other things. How does a musician who has a relatively high degree of technical virtuosity, the ability to play just about anything, develop the taste not to? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> a question that really should be asked more often, I suppose. And I would actually say it's a problem because I think that most musicians that do achieve a certain level of fluency, uh, not even chops or velocity or any of those things, how can a musician who has that particular set of tools understand that if you're going to fix the roof, you don't use the same tools you would use to um, put in a garbage disposal in your sink? You need different tools for those. People often get so excited by the fact that they can fix their roof that they don't really work on the interior that much. In fact, there's a degree of finesse and subtlety involved in the minor details of what a good improvisation or story needs to have happen in order to be told in the most interesting way that you wind up with people who have these good global structures without too much going on underneath. I think I was really lucky, again, to have been around lots of really good musicians who had incredible fluency, incredible skills, and were very um, mature about how they deployed those skills. Gary Burton comes to mind as a great example of this. You know, I would say the same about Steve Swallow. Mick Goodrick is a great example of that. And those were very formative figures for me to be around at uh, age 18, 19 years old. To see them have all of this firepower available and sort of then willfully not use it is, is impressive. You know, in recent times, I'd have to include Brad in that group. He has an amazing patience to kind of just wait out ideas and to not do what he can do, you know, easily, almost ever. It's kind of amazing how he is really willing for long periods of time to go by without any overt activity. Then suddenly then there's this whole other thing going on, which makes it even have, it have more weight and meaning. To have style is to be yourself, but on purpose. <laughs> well, one of the favorite quotes for me, the things that are the most personal are the things that ultimately become the most universal, which I think fits very well with what you just said. I really believe that's true. The more deeply you can understand the things that you care about and that you love in music, the closer you'll be to being able to be an effective ally of music to the people who might be out there listening to you. So people say you're a very melodic player. Why do you think that is? 
Well, to me, melody in general is the most impossible aspect of music to nail down. I often see people, and I can tell they think they're playing quote-unquote melodically, and it is. I mean, if you were to, like, break it down, it is melodic, but it doesn't really work as melody. The thing is, with chords, if you play these sets of tones under these conditions, there's no denying it. That's a B-flat 7 sharp 11. That's what it is. There's no discussion necessary. I think that the attempts to quantify melody under the guise of the way that melody is described even in classical-oriented studies, certain kinds of intervals invoke lyricism, certain kinds of intervals invoke romance or this, that, or the other thing, that's all well and good, and you can do those kinds of things. But when you hear, let's say, for instance, Lester Young or Stan Getz or on a, on a much uh, a higher speed level, Clifford Brown, there's a genuine melodic quality at work there in this sort of poetic melodic sense that goes way beyond anything you can quantify. And as much as, as you try to break down what is a melody, to me, it ultimately becomes a poetic definition. You can't really break it down. And it's also, to me, the rarest thing. It's the thing that you almost don't hear anymore, somebody who's a really good melodic improviser. It's kind of possible to become a pretty good abstract improviser knowing this, that, and the other thing, and it's kind of possible to be a pretty good bebop improviser, but for somebody to really devote their efforts as a musician or their practice time or whatever to becoming a good melodic player, you know, what do you even tell them to practice? Okay, what is it exactly? You can't really break it down. It's something that goes beyond the nuts and bolts of any discussions that we can have about things. Yet at the same time, in my opinion, being a strong melodic player, and when I say melodic myself, I'm going to have to uh, invoke a certain amount of artistic license because, you know, I would make a pretty strong case that Jack DeJunette drum solos are melodic. Same with Paul Motion. Yet at the same time, we're not talking about pitches there. We're talking about a sense of unfolding and a way of describing time and doing it with this sensibility that could only be described as melodic. Max Roach would be another great example. Roy Haynes. There's not pitches at work there. On the other hand, I would make a pretty strong case that ultimately Cecil Taylor is a melodic player. To me, the weight of his playing, as interesting as the harmonic stuff is, the rhythmic stuff is, ultimately it's the melodic quality of it to me that ties it together. It's the glue that makes it all connect. Ultimately a melodic function. So I was talking about overtly quote-unquote melodic players when I mentioned like Lester Young, Gary Burton would be a good example, Bill Evans, Jim Hall, but I don't think it's necessarily relegated to that either. Harmony is a melody, rhythm is a melody. It sort of can transform into any other element at will and back. The best harmonic players and composers also include a certain kind of melodic wisdom in each and every movement. Of course, the classic example of that would be Bach, right? I mean, you can play any one of those lines, and melodically by itself, it's more than happening. It's the absolute greatest melodic stuff you could ever imagine. So an interval is just the space between two notes. Why do you think that that should invoke an emotional response? I mean, is that conditioning, or is it something biological? I tend to go towards the biological description, not even biological, physical. 
that there is in fact a reason why when you examine things on an atomic level you find mathematical relationships that line up almost perfectly with the overtone series. It does seem like on the most minute level of our existence that relationship, the thing that makes a fifth sound good to all of us, exists. And on the other extreme, from what they seem to be discovering about the way that the universe is moving in space and through time, many of the qualities that the Overtone series implies appear to be at work on that level too. So it does seem to be something that's connected on that level. Let's face it, there are many mysterious aspects to music, to why we all respond to things the way that we generally seem to. My favorite way of describing this is that music is actually this gigantic mistake that we're not actually supposed to know about. Somehow in our sense of the universe around us, there's these tiny little cracks that give us a window into everything that we can't possibly understand because we're not equipped to understand those things because we don't have the tools for them. You know, we don't have the mechanisms to understand them. But somehow music seeps into those cracks and it's something that reminds us or indicates to us these imperceivable things that are in fact around us all the time. I tend to think of music as something that's an incredible variation away from the rest of most human experiences, and for that reason value it even more. Well, accompanied by the very valuable Yannick Guizdala on bass, Pat whipped out his guitar to demonstrate how he could create an improvisation using one four-note motif. Well, the show is called Bright Size Life, and I thought I'd ask Pat to demonstrate how he composed this tune using the interval of a fifth, and to show how an improviser can create a solo out of just one interval. 
Well, the Bright Size Life example is a good one because it represents a development of an idea that's based around a perfect fifth, which um, is one of the most attractive and sort of appealing motific universes to explore for me. You can just kind of keep soloing in the style of the melody and it sounds fine. One, two, three, four. sort of a development within itself of this sort of major seventh idea, but sort of implied over dominant seventh chords, which is, you know, kind of cool. And then that inverts with another version of that later on. Okay, here's the bridge. One, two, three, four. with a new sound and a new style, but it's interesting to note that his impulse was evolutionary, not revolutionary. In some ways, I was conservative, what they now call fusion. The sort of impulse to combine heavy backbeats, really loud, distorted guitar, and electric bass with jazz, 
didn't quite seem to work to me. It seemed to negate many of the qualities that were most attractive about jazz. At the time, my sensibility, and you would maybe remember this, Richard, uh, I was way more extreme than even Winton is in terms of what I did and did not accept about what I wanted to achieve. All of that was with the idea of reconciling that moment in time with the larger jazz tradition. The mechanics of it, using electronics, having this kind of band or that kind of band, were really incidental to the conceptual and particularly the specific contents of the music itself. There was a certain kind of drama and a certain sense of orchestration that I was feeling that was very much a part of the larger culture, particularly in the rock and pop world, that no one had really thought of going towards. As I look at my whole thing, it's very difficult for me to come up with a stratified version of it. Like, yes, there's the group, and then there's this other stuff. There's way too much overlap. And the idea for me, all the way along, is to come up with a narrative, storytelling quality that hopefully adds up. That's what I'm looking for. Within the whole idea of describing music in terms that are outside of the syntax of music itself, you have to give a lot of leeway to the whole concept of subjectivity and the poetry involved in that. I kind of naturally gravitate towards a very large umbrella. And when I say narrative, I'm using it myself in a poetic sense. There's a lot of different ways to sort of cut that cheese, so to speak. <laughs> I know you love art, and I know you're something of an artist yourself. What can art communicate that music can't? The visual arts for me are something like what music is for other people, in the sense that I'm completely in awe of anybody that can see something and then represent it on a piece of paper. What can music communicate that words can't? I think music excels at representing space and time. Okay. What can words communicate that music can't? My own personal relationship with language, specifically the English language, is late. Early in my life, I didn't care about language at all, especially coming from Missouri. People talk funny out there, and I was talking funny with them. Yet at the same time, I realized there is a certain precision words, and English is particularly precise language, is useful as a tool for me in about the sixth or seventh position down from music itself. I have worked on language to the degree that I am able to speak, I think, in a slightly more coherent way than I might have right out of Lee Summit. Pretty inspiringly coherent, I'd say. Well, I may be Richard Niles, but that was Pat Metheny. Pass the hankies, because that was the last of the series. But you can hear the whole incredible series again online on the BBC website. Thanks to my bass-playing production assistant, Yannick Wisdala, my engineer, Peter Dale, and to that most executive of producers, David Morley, and all at Above the Title. Thanks most of all to Pat Metheny for giving his time so generously, offering us a unique insight into his bright-sized life. On 88 to 91 FM, this is Radio 2 from the BBC.